Good morning and welcome again to Renewal. If we haven't yet met, my name is Pastor Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, whether you're with joining us for the first time this morning or you've been a, a longtime member at Renewal, we're, we're excited that you're here with us uh, as we come uh, to God's Word. I'm, I'm thankful uh, to be part of this community and to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning. If you've been following along with us in this series in Exodus, you know that we are walking through this story in Exodus. And Exodus is this sweeping, epic story about how God is rescuing his people, the people of Israel, from slavery and oppression by the hands of Pharaoh and the mighty Egyptians. And so that's why we titled the sermon series Exodus, From Captivity to Covenant. God is crafting a story of taking people out of the slavery of captivity and into the, the freedom of covenant relationship with him. Would you join me in prayer uh, this morning and ask that the Lord would open the eyes of our hearts uh, as we come to his word. Let's pray. Almighty God, in you are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we could see the wonders of your word this morning and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the ways of your wisdom. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts this morning. Illuminate our minds by the power of your spirit that as your word is proclaimed that we may hear with joy what you have to say to us this morning. And also, Lord, put it into practice in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Something you may not know about me is that I am a huge uh, jazz music fan. If you come to my office at any point, I'll probably have a jazz record playing. So you can come in and, and once we open things back up a little bit, come and listen to some jazz in my office uh, at the church. Uh, but my favorite jazz album of all time, and maybe my favorite album ever, is uh, an album by John Coltrane called Love Supreme. The album was re released in 1965, and Coltrane said it was a spiritual album, a long hymn about how his music had become intertwined with God. His main theme in this jazz hymn album is that everywhere you look, you will see the love of God. That's why he called it Love Supreme. And Coltrane, right here in Philadelphia, had battled heroin addiction, alcohol abuse, and a wild lifestyle that had cost him his jobs, his friends, and his family. Coltrane credited God with grabbing onto his heart in the depths of his depression and wild lifestyle and pulling him back onto the road of sobriety and inspiring the musical genius of the later end of his career. He wrote a poem that was put in the liner notes of Love Supreme that was meant to be read along with the fourth part, the fourth uh, song in the album, which he simply called Psalm. He writes, God will wash away all our tears. He always has, he always will. Seek him every day. In all ways, seek God every day. Let us sing all songs to God, to whom all praises do. Praise God. 
Coltrane understood something about being rescued by God. He knew what it meant to be saved, and he responded in praise. In a way, he was rehearsing again what we have just read about in the story of Exodus. I'm not going to recap the entire story of Exodus up until this point this morning, but Moses and his brother Aaron had come to Egypt, and the Lord had used them to speak to Pharaoh and to rain down the, the ten plagues upon Egypt. The tenth plague was particularly devastating, the death of the firstborn. And Pastor Dwight last week preached about the Passover event and how God used the Passover uh, to protect his people and then instituted the Passover meal as a way for them to continually rehearse and remind them of God's supreme love towards them. This morning, we come to maybe the first climax of the book of Exodus. I say the first because arguably there are many different climaxes in this sweeping story. Uh, But today, the crossing of the sea is undoubtedly a climactic event in Exodus and a climactic event in the story of God's people. Let's unpack this climactic event a little bit this morning. The three parts of the story that I'm going to focus on are one, missing the bigger picture, two, God's agenda, and three, from deliverance to doxology. So missing the bigger picture, God's agenda, and finally, from deliverance to doxology. So first, missing the bigger picture. In chapter 14, in verses 10 through 14, we read about the the people of Israel trapped between the mighty Egyptian army and the Red Sea. It's hard to picture just how crazy this scene would have been. If you remember, Pharaoh was feeling utterly humiliated and defeated after the 10th plague, and he finally says, Fine, let the people of Israel go. I'm tired of dealing with them. So hundreds and thousands of men and women and children and animals packed up all their belongings and began to make their way out of the city of Ramses that they, with their own hands, had helped build. But instead of going north or northeast, which would have made more sense, God directs them in another way. God leads them by way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. God led them by day with a pillar of clouds and by night a pillar of fire. This was a a massive movement of people that probably took weeks, if not months, to get out of Ramesses. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened once again. And he takes 600 of his own chariots plus hundreds, if not thousands of more chariots from across his military, and he rode out after the Israelites. And the Israelites were trapped between a rock and a hard place. The mightiest army in the world in front of them and the Red Sea behind them. And here is where God's people miss the bigger picture. The people begin to have some bad faith remembering of how good things used to be back when they were slaves in Egypt. This was a a beginning of a pattern that would emerge in the life of Israel. When things would get hard, they would be fearful, they would grumble and complain, and they would begin to look back to Egypt. 
Look at verses 10 and 12 and and pick out the fear and the grumbling and the looking back. I'll read it again. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? When, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. When hardship and difficulty are encountered, the miserable past suddenly sounds like the good old days. God had just dramatically and miraculously delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians, but they were still grumbly and fearful, and they didn't believe that God really wanted to rescue them. So here's the question. If we're honest with ourselves this morning, can you relate to the Israelites here? When things get real, we all get a little squirrely, right? We all love God when everything is going our way, when everything is hashtag blessed and Instagram perfect. We find it easy to love God. But what about the times of pain and loss and fear? Losing a job, losing a loved one, a relationship breakup, chronic sickness or pain. Do you forget God? Do you miss the bigger picture like the Israelites did here and turn to fear and grumbling and wishing for the good old days? I think one reason God has given us this story is a reminder that we don't always see the bigger picture of what he's up to. We don't always get to see what God is doing, but we are still invited to trust him. So like we all do sometimes, Israel was missing the bigger picture of what God was up to, and they begin to grumble and complain. So what was God up to? That brings us to our second point this morning, God's agenda. What was God's agenda? To put it plainly, his agenda was his own glory. In this whole story of taking his people from captivity to covenant, his desire is to put his own glory on display for the entire world to see. As God sent Moses and Aaron into confrontation with Pharaoh and the mighty Egypt, he was setting up a clash between himself and the gods of Egypt, including Pharaoh himself, who was seen as a kind of God-man. In a very real way, God was going to expose the nonsense of their religion. His own glory and superiority over their gods, the kind of gods who were okay with slavery and oppression and subjugation of God's people. The gods of Egypt were arbitrary and capricious. And part of God's agenda was to not only show Israel his glory, but to show Egypt and the nations his glory as well. Back in chapter 7, verse 5, God said, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. This is proclaimed multiple times in our story. That is his goal. His agenda was for his own glory. The agenda was for all peoples everywhere to know that he is the only true 
God. In 14.4, right before our reading this morning, God said, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, the Israelites, and I, God, will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. It keeps coming back. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. This almost exact wording is repeated again in 14 verses 17 through 18. God is going to do this incredible thing for his own glory so that the Egyptians will know that he is the Lord. So what is this incredible thing that God is going to do to rescue his people and show his glory? He first takes a, this pillar of clouds and fire that was leading Israel and he puts it in between Israel and the mighty army of Egypt. With all those chariots and army coming forward, they were stopped in their tracks because of what God did. And then he had Moses stretch out his hand over the sea. Remember, they were stuck between a rock and a hard place. And Moses turns around and stretches out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove back the sea by a mighty east wind, dividing the waters and making the sea ground below them become dry land. The language there describing a wall of water on either side means like a high city wall. That's how high the water was on either side. In those days, a city wall could reach as high as 40 feet high or taller. And this allowed for the rescue of God's people, the salvation of the people of God. With two walls of water on either side of them and with dry ground underneath them, they made their way across the Red Sea. The Egyptians were then allowed to pursue them. But even in that, the Lord frustrated their ability to gain ground on the people of Israel. And once Israel was on the other side safely, and the Egyptians, the mighty army, was struggling to get across the middle of the Red Sea, God commanded Moses to lift up his arms once again, and the waters returned. Scripture tells us that not one of the Egyptians remained. The mighty Egyptian army had been defeated by the mighty hand of God. This mighty act of deliverance, of rescue, was meant to proclaim his glory for all generations so that everyone would know that he is the Lord, the only true God. So how do God's people respond? Remember that first they were missing the bigger picture. They didn't see what God was up to. Uh, But now God has rescued them in this mighty act of salvation. So what what do the people of Israel do now? That brings us to our third and final point this morning. From deliverance to doxology. In chapter 15, Moses breaks out in praise. He breaks out in song. The first line of the song is probably the most famous. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Some of you might have even grown up singing the little kid's song uh, that comes straight from this song of Moses. I sang it in Christian camps growing up. Um, But you may remember that song. And when Moses is done singing this song, his sister Miriam steps up 
the prophetess and picks up a tambourine and she begins to lead the the women of Israel in song and joyful dance. A party breaks out singing the same song. I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider have been thrown into the sea. The whole scene reminds me of C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain. Lewis was meditating on suffering and pain and why God would allow suffering to happen to his people. And he made this brilliant observation that the few moments of joy and festivity, the times of fun and silliness and dance and games are not natural here on earth. They find their true home in a better country. In the end of ends, when Jesus returns, Lewis concludes, joy is the serious business of heaven. Joy is the serious business of heaven. You see, those moments in our lives when we experience pure joy or when we see joy in the face of a child or we see anyone experiencing pure joy, those moments, those delights are a foretaste of heaven. When those moments break through here on earth like they did in the song of Moses and Miriam, we are experiencing in miniature what heaven is going to be like. There's a reason that singing praise is part of our worship service. Think about some of the songs that we sing. Think about the way that we get a foretaste of heaven when we sing together. For me, it's an old hymn like There is a Fountain. Think about the rich theological depth and truth about the forgiveness of sin found in Jesus Christ. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Or how about the song we sing often here in Christ Alone? The second stanza speaks to me in a way that few other songs do. In Christ Alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, the gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Or how about every, the song we sing every Advent season, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. The words and music to that Christmas carol are just beautiful. The second verse is about the nature of the incarnation of Jesus. Christ by heaven, highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased is man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. These deep theological truths about God that get burned into our brains, often even without us knowing it. But beyond these truths getting burned into our brains, these songs also burn love into our hearts, a right longing for heaven into our souls. Joyful songs like these are the good and right response of people who have been rescued. It's what Moses and Miriam and the people of Israel did. They sang. It is the right response of salvation. From salvation to praise. From pose to poetry. From deliverance to doxology. So how do we read this story? Just taking a step back. How do we read 
this story? How do we apply it? It's such a central story of faith for so many people and has been told and retold and applied in various contexts for generations. Here in the United States, uh, this story has a complicated history of interpretation. First, the, the pilgrims who famously landed on Plymouth Rock, who were separatist English Puritans, and later waves of Puritans immigrants who were steeped in Scripture saw themselves as a kind of new Israel. And for them, crossing the Atlantic Sea became a kind of crossing the Red Sea. In their sermons, they talked about this. They imagined themselves reenacting the story of Exodus, and America for them became a promised land to be conquered. Years later in the antebellum South, large slaveholding plantation owners thought of themselves as the new Israel, fighting against northern oppression, while at the exact same time, their African slaves were laying the groundwork for the black church in America and were identifying themselves with the enslaved people of Israel and the plantation owners as the oppressive Egyptians. It's much easier, easier for me to understand how these Christian slaves in the American South, how they gained inspiration and comfort from the story of Exodus than the southern slave owners. If anything, those southern slave owners should have read this story and been scared out of their minds. But today, this morning, how do we interpret this? How do we apply it? If you want to try to see yourself in this story, you really only have two options. You don't get to see yourself as God. You don't even get to see yourself as Moses. Your only options are either the enemy of God, the slave-holding, oppressive, hard-hearted Pharaoh, or the regular oppressed Israelites who are in need of saving. If we're being honest, for most of us, there are times in our lives where we've been both where we've been the hard-hearted oppressors of others, and we've been also at times the oppressed ones in need of rescue. The truth is that both, that both the oppressor and the oppressed, the slaveholder and the slave, are in need of saving. We all share the common enemies of sin and death and Satan. So the question is, where do you go for rescue? When you're faced with your own sin, when you're faced with the sin of others against you, when you're faced with death and the temptations of the devil, where do you go for saving? The Israelites had nowhere else to turn. They were between a rock and a hard place, and God rescued them through his servant Moses. And here's the good news we have a new and better Moses. We have Jesus. The whole story of Moses and the dramatic rescue of God's people crossing the Red Sea by God's mighty right hand, these are all foretastes of Jesus. They were the shadow, and Jesus is the substance. They were the whisper, and Jesus is the truth. The Apostle Paul connects the crossing of the Red Sea with our Christian baptism. And he talks about the whole story of Exodus and, and points that it points us to Jesus. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is where Paul tells this story, but Paul also uses it as a warning that we should not grumble and complain like the Israelites did, that we shouldn't chase after false idols like the Israelites did, that we shouldn't indulge in sexual immorality like the Israelites did. Instead, Paul calls us to believe in Jesus. That we should flee from immorality. That we should run to Jesus. That instead of grumbling and complaining, that we should praise the only one who is mighty to save. Believe that Jesus can save you this morning. If you have faith in him, then you have been rescued from sin and death and Satan. You have crossed over the Red Sea. You are secure in his mighty right hand. Brothers and sisters, even if you have the smallest amount of faith this morning, you are his beloved people. And now what is left for you is to respond in praise. God's love supreme saved the people of Israel from certain death and destruction. Moses lifted up his arm and the waters of salvation opened wide. Jesus lifted up his arms and God's all-encompassing love went on display for the whole world to see. So friends, run to Jesus for salvation this morning. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you pray with me? And then when we close out, we're all going to get a chance to respond in praise. So let's belt out praise to the one who has saved us this morning. Let's pray.